This is Kristen Smith, and you're listening to the Destination Begin podcast. Thanks for joining me for another episode. I have the flu, so I sound a bit wonky. I apologize. Trying to hold it together. It's not hard to sit here and do a podcast, but I'm really, really sick, and my voice, I think, just kind of starts to die off as I go along. So please forgive me in advance. But before we get started, I wanted to ask all of you that are listening to please share this podcast. If you could share a link to your social media, share a link to Facebook, send an episode to a friend or two, just somehow help me get the word out. The podcast world is huge and there are a billion podcasts and they're all really great. And I would love to get more listenership to this podcast. I'm not doing this for money, even though I've made $8 now on this podcast. I'm doing it because I really am passionate about getting inspiration and motivation to the masses, to those of you who really need to hear a story of hope and that you can get unstuck and that nothing is too terrible to overcome. And that's why I'm here in this space. So please share in any way that you can, if you can also subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review and um, all those things really matter and they really help. And I know it takes a couple of minutes. And so I thank you in advance for doing that for me. I really appreciate it. Today I'm talking about relationships. And the fact that I've been married and divorced twice may disqualify me, in your opinion, from being able to talk about relationships. And I do not think of myself as a relationship expert at all. And the opposite, I have fumbled around my entire adult life in and out of relationships, I think just like a lot of people. Um, But today I'm going to tell the story of my first marriage. It was the most difficult relationship of my life. I got married really young and under circumstances that were ridiculous. And I want to tell the story because there's a lot to be learned from it, and getting out of it was very hard. I talk about getting unstuck from an abusive relationship, and that's what it was. And after that, after getting out, the real work began in getting unstuck emotionally and mentally because it's really easy to take that experience and project it on every other future relationship, to take that experience and let it completely color and paint the rest of your life. And it's really easy to wear the badge of I've been hurt and I've been through stuff and then use that as an excuse. And so not only did I have to get unstuck from the relationship as in getting divorced and getting out, but I had to do the work to become the person that I needed to be outside of that relationship. So that's why I'm talking about it here. My second marriage um, was more recent and it was very short. And I'm choosing not to discuss it on this podcast Maybe someday I will, but for those of you that know me well, a lot of you know my um, second husband, and I just don't wish to tell that story here. I don't feel like it's mine entirely to tell. And so for lots of different reasons, you won't hear the details of that, and um, I just want to be very respectful to him. Um, Another qualifier, I'm not telling this story out of anger or bitterness. 
I'm not telling it to paint my first husband in a negative light, although I will because I'm giving the honest account. But I'm also giving an honest account of my actions and I'm painting myself in a negative light. I made some really terrible decisions and I did some really terrible things. And so I'm trying really hard to be fair in representing both sides of the situation, which is the only way to truly get emotionally unstuck from any relationship. It's that whole being honest about it from go. So with that said, just going to have story time. So if you've listened to some of my other podcasts, you know where I come from, that I was raised in a cult, which means I was very sheltered. There were not a lot of kids my age, especially boys. There were some, but the boys in cold church were my age and I knew them since I was born basically. And so you didn't grow up thinking of them as boys. They were just people. They were just other kids. And so there was an opportunity for the typical interactions with boys. Also being homeschooled, I wasn't in school. So I didn't have that feedback either. So a lot of kids I grew up with would have been really well served if they just married each other because then you have the same experiences and same background and it all works fine. But since our church crumbled and most of our families all left as we all grew up, that didn't happen. And so I'm not the only one with a story of a first marriage that was quite a disaster. Um, I would say we were very ill-equipped to know how to approach the opposite sex. In my house, also being overweight, starting at a young age, when that shift happened, when I started to get chubby, my sister, she was two years older than me, she was, you know, hitting puberty and growing up and looking more and more beautiful and more and more like a young lady. And my sister was beautiful and still is beautiful. And walking out in public in the mall or in a store, Boys looked at her and snickered and pointed and she got attention and got some flirtations and none of that was ever directed at me, which, you know, I was younger. So there's that. And then I was, I was a fat kid and I was also wearing really weird clothes. My sister wore weird clothes too, but she had an eye for being able to get my mom to kind of tweak the patterns. And like I talked about in my other episode, like she picked more wild fabrics and she just kind of knew how to look cool. My sister's always had a really great aesthetic and she just knew how to work it. And so it became clear very early on that I was not cute and that my sister was. And so I just didn't didn't really care. I never imagined a boy would look at me and boys didn't look at me and so I was right. My home life too, my I played with my brother a lot. My brother was my buddy. He was 7 years older than me. He used to have me pitch to him in the backyard and um, we just – we hung out and played some sporting things. Like I got to be pretty good at pitching and hitting a baseball and stuff because he taught me. And so I had that male relationship and my brother was really great to me when he wasn't, you know, beating me up the way big brothers do. Uh, but my dad – my dad worked a lot. My dad wasn't around a lot, and when he was around, he was tired. And my dad had a dad who was very mean and was very harsh and hurt his kids a lot. 
emotionally and mentally. And my dad just didn't want to be like his dad. And I, I'm guessing, but I don't think he knew how to do it right. He just knew how to do it wrong. And so it, it appeared to me, and this is hindsight now, that his strategy was just to basically not hurt us. And I think he felt like the way to do that was to just kind of stay quiet, work really hard, provide for the family, and and just leave us be. And so my dad, I didn't really know my dad. I didn't have a close relationship with my dad. We didn't interact. And if there's one thing I've come to understand, it's that a father-daughter relationship is really important for how you develop and how you view yourself and how you view a girl will view her value in the eyes of a boy. And I, my dad never hurt me. My dad, he was definitely an advocate and he was very kind and he came to my defense if needed. But I just basically assumed he didn't really know me and didn't care a whole lot about me. And he did. He loved me very much. He just didn't demonstrate it. And so as I got older and became a teenager and um, started to be interested in boys and look at boys and they still weren't looking at me, um, I just really felt unwanted, unloved, and just starved for male attention and male affection. And I've often said that it's a good thing that I met my first husband because while he was terrible, it could have been so much worse because the state that my heart was in and my emotional well-being was in at the time that I met him was so stark and so terrible that if a really heinous, physically abusive, masochistic, I mean, imagine the worst person in the world, I probably would have gone with them. I just wanted attention and love from a man. It didn't matter who it was. And Donnie was not nice to me from the beginning. I mean, he was nice, but he was very selfish. And so when we started dating, he most definitely put himself first all the time. He did not care about treating me right or being kind to me or making me feel good. It was all about him. And I didn't care because I was a rule follower. I knew how to make people pleased. I knew how to meet everyone's needs. I was taught that God first, others second, me last. So while it hurt my feelings to be trivialized and it was very apparent very early on that I was not important to him, I knew how to make him happy, which gave me a sense of value. That's where I got my sense of value my whole childhood was pleasing other people and following the rules and doing nice things for people and following my mom's orders and being the best that I could be. And so if I had met, I mean, if I'd met Jeffrey Dahmer, I'd been like, yeah, sure, I'll date you. Let's do this. So while it wasn't great, my first marriage was awful. Um, I'm, I am grateful that it wasn't worse than it was because it could have been. I was that starved for positive attention from a male. And so I met my first husband when I was in college I had just moved into the dorms at an evangelical college here in St. Paul, and I didn't fit in because, well, it was an evangelical college, Bible-based. None of them were like our culture, which I mean my 
classmates wore pants and went to movies. And the big debate on campus was dancing. We had to sign a lifestyle statement at that school that you wouldn't dance. It was considered, I don't know what it was considered. It was wrong. It was against the lifestyle statement. And so, I I mean, I was fine not dancing. I didn't know how to dance. We were taught that we could dance in the spirit in church, but like dancing other than that was considered to be lewd. So all of my classmates were typical evangelical people in big churches and seemed to be very okay with who they were and dealing with each other. And I did not. I was a mess. And so I quit trying to fit in with my roommates. I quit trying to fit in with my peers and I just buried myself in the computer lab. And the computer lab in 1996 was, you know, Netscape Navigator and AOL. And the chat rooms were these just websites you'd log into and you'd make a profile picture and you'd type something on the screen and then you'd reload and it would reload your comment and everyone that was on that screen could see it and then they could reply and it would become this long like tree of replies. And so you sat there for hours refreshing and reading. So you could blow an entire evening having a conversation with somebody and it was great. I went in there and I found Christian chat rooms about Christian music and found this whole other world that existed I didn't know about on the internet. And I met this guy who was in a death metal band, a Christian death metal band called Soterios with his best friends in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he was posting posters for a concert they were doing and talking about how they were this awesome Christian death metal band. And I think he was playing clips of the music, which basically it's growling. And he was the singer. So he was like a death metal growl guy. Long black hair, super bad boy, but Christian. And so, you know, here's me completely appalled at this because we were taught that drums and heavy metal and that kind of stuff was satanic and that music needed to be 4-4 tempo and pleasing to the ear. And here's this guy saying that his death metal band was Christian and they were changing lives and reaching the loss. And I'm like, "Mm, excuse me, but Christianity is about life and your band is about death. And so you cannot be a Christian death metal band. It's an oxymoron. That was basically the first words I spoke to him, to which he was very defensive, of course, and said, he had this argument asking me, can Satan create anything? And I was like, no, of course not. Like only God creates things. You know, I was so sure of my my theology. And he said, well, then who created death metal music? Satan can't create it. So God had to have created it. And he was just like, boom, high five, ha ha, prove my point. And I was like, wow, he's so smart. I never thought of that. God created death metal music. And I was in. I was like, yeah, everything I've been told is wrong. (laughs) And so we started chatting and we started emailing. And pretty soon we were talking on the phone long distance. This is when you had to pay to talk on the phone long distance. We talked on the phone long distance. And he would get angry if I had to go to class. And he would get angry if I had to hang up the phone and go to work. And so right away he was controlling my time and making me feel bad if I wanted to like hang out in the computer lounge and talk to classmates or 
go to anything on campus. And so right away, he jumped in and started controlling my every move. And I couldn't handle the idea of going back to life where I wasn't special to someone. And so I just fell into it. And I reported into him. And I, as soon as I got done with the class, I ran home and I called him on my dime. Spent all of my money on long distance phone calls. My roommates, I had seven girl roommates in this eight girl quad at school. They were devastated for me. They were like, what are you doing? I wasn't going to listen to these girls who they didn't know me. They didn't know where I came from and it didn't matter. I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize this attention that I was getting. And it was about, I don't know, maybe a month or six weeks into this that he got in his car and drove from Fayetteville, North Carolina to Minneapolis, Minnesota to meet me in person for the first time. You know, and this is before like webcams and FaceTime. So we had mailed pictures back and forth and emailed pictures, but never met him before. And so here I am saying, hi, parents and sister and family. Um, this guy I met on the internet, he's really terrific and he's a Christian and he's coming to visit me. And my family was absolutely beside themselves. My sister was super cool. She's like, he can stay with us and you know, we'll host him because my sister was smart enough to know, like, don't push against this because she herself had left to get married and she knew enough to kind of go along with me because fighting me would have just made me more adamant. So he came up to Minnesota and um, we spent some time together. I think he was here for like a week, you know, fell madly in love. And even that, like he wanted to show me all of his favorite movies and he wanted to go to the Mall of America and he didn't have any money. And so I spent all of my money on him. And I mean, he was just incredibly manipulative and abusive from the beginning. I was 18 and he was 19. And so we were both young, stupid teenage kids. And when he left and went back to North Carolina, we had agreed, like, we're going to be together forever. We're going to get married. And so it just continued where I was on the phone all the time and I didn't sleep. I stopped eating because I wanted to lose weight to be prettier for him. And my family, everyone was just worried sick about me. Cold church people, everyone was trying to really reach me and be like, you, you know, you're worth more than this. And my dad wrote me a letter to tell me that he was concerned. And my response was, well, why are you, why are you talking to me now? Where have you been all of this time? Where have you been my 19 years, 18 years of life? Now you have an opinion? You don't get an opinion now. You've been there. You've invested nothing in my life. You don't get an opinion. And I, and I really felt that way. And I, you know, that's a, that's a feeling that was, that's hard to argue with. And it's one of the reasons why whenever I meet a man that has a daughter, I kind of get in their grill and say, stay all up in your daughter's business from the minute she is born. Be her hero, be her friend, talk to her, find out what's going on in her life so that you have buy-in when it most matters. Because if you don't have that, huh, it's scary. I, I lived it. Um, and again, I'm not blaming my dad. I have come to terms with all of this and I love my father dearly and I'm not bitter against him and I love him to the moon and back. But um, at the time, that was a big player in the situation. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't get to step in now and say, you love me and you want what's best for me. And so, I mean, I was off to the races and um, just 
buried my feet in hardcore. And so my grades got worse and I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. That whole year of school was just a disaster. And um, at the end of it, I went on a study trip to Israel with a group of kids from school, um, which was really great. And while I was there, a man in our church that I actually did respect called me and told me, like, you're throwing your life away. This guy is not good. And I don't remember the conversation, but he convinced me and I broke up with Donnie over the phone from Israel. And he had planned on coming to Minnesota at that time and marry me. And, and so I broke up with him. And I had a period of time, I don't know, like maybe two months where I was broken up with him and I was feeling good about, okay, this was a terrible relationship and I don't want to make that mistake again. But he moved up to Minnesota anyway and showed up and it was all over. He sent a rose to me at work and it was done. I needed that love back. I needed that attention back. And so I started seeing him behind my parents' back and um, I, I wasn't going to let him go for anything. There was nothing that could have convinced me at that point then to not be with this this guy. And so he was living somewhere in Minneapolis. I was living with my parents we were meeting up in secret. Someone from cult church saw us and told my parents and they lost their minds because they thought he was gone and we were broken up and I was back to being the good girl and here I am sneaking around uh, on my lunch hour and after work. And yeah, so this is where the story gets really embarrassing. And this is where <laughs> all of the, this is where it all gets really real. This will paint the picture of just how messed up Kristen's brain was. So in cold church, there was never any talk about sex. It wasn't discussed. It was basically put out there that parents, you talk about these things at home and you educate your kids about this stuff at home. It wasn't discussed. And since we were homeschooled, obviously we didn't get any sex education. Since we had no media, there was no movies, there was no TV. I had no idea what sex was until I did it. And um, it was never discussed in our home. And the only thing that I kind of knew was that there were women, girls in our church that had gotten pregnant and all of a sudden got married. And it was very sad. And it was these like narrowed brows and you know, the pastor's daughter. This had happened to the pastor's daughter, um, which she didn't get shamed for it. And there was a whole there was a whole slew of them that this happened with, and all I knew as a kid was all of a sudden these people are married and then they're having a baby. I didn't even know where babies came from. I was terrified as a kid. I remember being, "What if I just wake up in the morning and I'm pregnant? Like, what do I do?" Because, you know, the girl down the street walking down the street was pregnant, and my mom would say, "Like, oh my god, that girl got pregnant. It's such a shame. How disgusting!" And I'd be like, "Well, what if that happened to me?" My mom would think I was disgusting. I had no idea that there was anything involved in getting pregnant other than just it happened to you. And so I was terrified of getting pregnant because I didn't know how it happened. Um, so, but of course, by the time that I was, you know, having sex, I obviously knew what was going on. And I knew that if I was pregnant, my parents would call the pastor and they would make us get married. And so I'm like, well, I'll just tell them I'm pregnant and then they'll make us get married and I'll get to marry him and and then I'll get what I want. And so that's what I did. I'm like, yeah, well, sorry guys, I'm pregnant. And I'll never I'll just never forget that 
evening for the rest of my life. It was terrible. And I didn't care. I was willing to bear all of that like cultured shame. Didn't care. It's going to get my way no matter what. Um, Donnie didn't even know that I was lying. I mean, how would he? Like, nobody made me pee on a stick, okay? Nobody made me prove this pregnancy. So a bunch of idiots. Anyway, so that was it. All right. You're pregnant. You're going to get married. So booked a courthouse wedding, got married in a pink suit of my mom's in the courthouse. The boy from Colt Church who dumped me for the pastor's granddaughter, um, those two had since gotten married and they were our only friends in church. So they were our witnesses. Talk about irony. <laughs> they were the witnesses for us at our wedding at the courthouse downtown Minneapolis. And we went to Olive Garden afterwards because that was his favorite restaurant and we always did what he wanted. And we went and had a honeymoon at the Mall of America um, overnight and went to the arcade and I paid for all of it. And there you go. We were married. I got my way. And so the problem was I wasn't pregnant and I didn't really know what to do about that because everybody thought I was pregnant and, you know, I wasn't pregnant. So being the brilliant 18-year-old um, that I was, I then had to make up the lie that I miscarried the baby. And then unfortunately, two weeks later, I did get pregnant. And, you know, the people around me, most people like figured out all this garbage that like, wow, Kristen's just a dirty liar. And and I was. I just thought that I was just smarter than everyone and going to get my way. And I didn't even tell Donnie the truth. I mean, I lied to him and I lied to everyone. And um, and that's why I say like I knew walking into this marriage that I was manipulating all the circumstances and doing exactly what I wanted to do and that it probably was going to blow up in my face, but I didn't care. I was not going to live without someone loving me and without that attention. It was it was as imperative to my living as oxygen. And so I was willing to be like the shamed girl. They made me sit in the back row at church, you know, the basically the scarlet letter. Um, didn't care. Got what I wanted. Ridiculous in hindsight, right? But I took my punishment, as it were, the shaming, and we lived with my parents for the first couple of months, and we got our own apartment and started getting ready for the baby and started setting up house. And it was a couple of months in before my conscience really started to get the best of me. I I was not raised to be a dirty liar and it ate at me. And finally, I told the truth. And I told my husband, told my parents. And my husband was surprised, but he didn't care. Like he got what he wanted to. And my siblings were not shocked because they had kind of figured it out. But I had to go to cold church and confess and so they made me stand up in front of the whole congregation and confess my lie. And then the whole church came around and laid hands on me and prayed for me and quote unquote forgave me for my sin. And um, I had to keep sitting in the back row um, and bear the shame of it. So that's what I did. That is what I did to get what I thought I needed to be whole and complete, to to get the love that I really felt like I, I had not had and I didn't have within myself. And so when things went bad very quickly, I mean, he was incredibly controlling. 
He had more rules than my mom did. He couldn't be alone. He couldn't stand me having friends. He always thought I was cheating on him or, I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, the message back to me from my parents and from the church was, well, you made your bed, so lay in it. And so there was no assistance given. My dad was very kind. He he would come over and babysit. He would come over and like watch a movie with him so that I could leave and do something else because my ex-husband could not handle being home alone. I mean, he was just ridiculous. And of course, in hindsight, he was a, a broken, hurting person too. I understand a lot of why he was the way he was. He wasn't – he didn't start out and intend to be that kind of a person. He ended up being that kind of a person. And, and he leaned into it and became a real bad person. But we were kids and it was a mess. So I was really good at following all of those rules and I just learned how to make myself happy in other ways. People ask me a lot now, even now, how are you so happy when your life is falling apart? How are you so happy when things go wrong? Because when things go wrong, I really, really do find a way to be happy. It's a superpower. It's not a superpower. I learned it from the ripe old age of 18 and 19 when I married this boy and realized that I had just like signed my own prison sentence. I learned how to keep him happy and find ways to find happiness in other things for myself. And it's a skill and it's something that I wish I could have learned a different way, but I became very good at it. I was trained very well to put others first. I was trained very well to follow rules. So I could meet his needs. I could keep him happy. I could take care of our home and our baby, and I could keep him happy for the most part and then find a way for me to be happy and fulfilled as well. And so that relationship was incredibly abusive and emotionally damaging in so many ways. But the merit in my life now of that relationship is huge because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am today without that relationship, obviously. And like I said before, it could have been so much worse. I got really lucky. And he was very pleased in hindsight, that I had pulled off all of this manipulation so that we could be together because he then didn't have to fight my parents and the church to get me, which, I mean, I don't know what his plan was to convince them to let him marry me. It was never going to happen. Um, but, you know, the whole thing, I, I manipulated things so terribly. And um, the whole thing was just so dysfunctional. He was an incredibly unhealthy person. I was an incredibly unhealthy person. And it was just a match made in unhealthyville, right? Um, and so in our marriage, it worked because I knew how to keep him happy. I knew how to follow rules. Um, I had a, kind of a blissful period there where I was at home taking care of my baby. I was fortunate as well that he was very smart and he was able to get a good job and support us and – I was able to stay home with our baby, and I loved that period of my life. I'm so glad I got to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom to my baby, Stephen. Those days were just so lovely. And then um, I decided to go back to school because I had you know, that one year of college under my belt, and it was a disaster. And I wanted to get that degree that I knew I really needed and had and honestly just – I was hungry to get back to learning 
And it took a lot of convincing for him to let me do that. And so the deal we worked out was that I could go to school during the day while Stephen was in school. And then the only way he'd go along with me going to school is if when he got home from work, I was home and that I participated with him with dinner and hung out with him watching TV or whatever till he went to bed. And then I could do homework. So he didn't want to be inconvenienced by my schoolwork. And then I was allowed to do it. So my schedule when I went back to school was to basically go to school during the day, do homework as much as I could before he got home, make dinner for the family, hang out with him doing whatever he wanted to do. And then I'd stay up half the night doing homework. And so that contributed to uh, my obesity was I would eat all evening, all night while I was doing homework. And that whole schedule of school for four years is when I hit my highest weight. And then it became such a demoralizing situation where here I am, you know, 400 pounds, married to somebody who has completely locked me down. And my only joy was in doing well in school. And then I told in a previous episode about the moment that that everything changed for me was when my my classmate Shannon paid me a compliment and said that my outfit looked nice in school. And all of a sudden, I wondered if perhaps there was more to me than I thought there was. And I started to care about what I looked like. I started to put attention into just my outfits. I mean, nothing crazy. Started to wear makeup. Nothing crazy. I just started to invest in me for the first time. Instead of just being, you know, obedient wife, mom, and student. And it changed how I looked at myself very slowly. But it meant that when he put me down and told me that I was stupid or told me I was nothing without him, my chin would lift. And I would defy that thought in my head like, no, I don't think he's right. I don't think he's right. And over time, I started to express that. Like, no, I don't think you're right. You don't get to say that to me. I am smart. I am capable. And he did not like that. (laughs) And that is when everything started to fall apart. When I started to stand up for myself, um, he got very angry and very violent and very – it got bad. And he was starting to lose control of me, and that scared him because in his mind, the only – way that he had validity was to prove to everyone that he could control his family and keep his wife in line and that he had all of these things. And um, he loved things and status and appearance, and he needed everything to be just so, so that he felt like a big man. And um, when I was like, no, like I, no, I'm not stupid. And I could survive without you. I'm not going to survive without you. I, I never threatened to leave him. But I started to resent this idea that without him, I was nothing because I started to believe that that was true, that I could be something even without a husband, even without love from a man. And as that dynamic continued to evolve, um, it got really bad. And instead of him relaxing his grip, he tightened his grip and it got really scary. And I'm not going to go into details. but there was a, a couple of years of incredibly traumatic 
um, events that really threatened to destroy me and um, have left deep, deep scars in the fabric of who I am. And of all the things that you can shake off in life, those things you can't. And um, I choose not to fixate on them, but I, I often wonder if I had gotten out a little earlier and could have avoided that, like what, what life would be, but that's a fool's errand, right? Um, so we started going to marriage counseling, which was which was really funny in hindsight because that made everything worse. Because he used to spend a lot of time convincing me that I was rebellious and a bad person because I wanted to be my own person. Um, and so then he spent all of his time convincing the marriage counselor that of that. And the marriage counselor, of course, was like, well, no, I mean, your wife is a human being and she gets to have her own thoughts and she gets to have her own life within reason. And he was very upset that the marriage counselor didn't take his side. And so he got even more scary. And um, there was one time he ran me off the road on our way home from marriage counseling. And um, I started to have to leave for a week at a time or so, so that he could cool off and I could feel safe to be in the house. And so I would go, I'd stay with my sister and then I'd go back and try again. And I was determined that we were going to make this work. And um, it was about that time that my family and my friends were saying, like, why are you going back? This is getting worse and worse. And I just said, you know, I've got it in me. I, I've got one more try in me. I can, I feel like I can take more. I feel like I have energy again. Like we can keep trying. And so every time I would leave and I would just be so hurt and upset, a week or so apart, I would feel like, okay, I feel like I got more energy. Let's try again. And at one point, something happened inside of me, a flip of a switch where I became ambivalent and I was done. And there was nothing that could have been said or done to change my mind. I was just done. And I knew that I couldn't do it anymore. And that was it. And so he moved out. I had the house. We started talking about getting a divorce. Um, he started parking outside the house, stalking me, um, terrorizing me. It was awful. And um, long story short with that, eventually it was over and we had a deal and I was able to to divorce him. It took a long time. I conceded everything that I possibly could have. I took very little of anything. Um, basically, I just, at that point, I just wanted my freedom. And so um, I just wanted to get out. What's interesting about relationships that are abusive and controlling, you hear it so often about women who go back over and over again to abusive spouses. And it's so easy to say, why? Why do they go back? Why do you go back? I get it. I mean, I I get it. I went back over and over again um, because when your self-worth is so low, and in my case, it was just starting to blossom, but it was still not high. Um, and when all you know in a relationship is that, it's like you imagine 
peace and a loving relationship could exist, but you've never experienced it. And so it's like, it's better than nothing. The idea of being alone and waiting for something better is terrifying. And so you go back, at least I went back because I was so terrified of the unknown and I'd never been alone and I'd never done life alone. And I just didn't know how to cope with life alone. I didn't know anything except a system of control in my growing up years and then the system of control of my husband. And this idea of everything is just me and silence was more terrifying than the terrifying feeling in my house. I knew what it was like in my house. I didn't know what it was going to be like out there. And so it's like the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Um, and it's a vicious cycle and, and, and I get it. And so I think unless you've lived it, it's, it is really hard to understand why women or men, I know some, some men as well, um, why you'd go back to such emotional and physical abuse. Well, it's a deep, deep internal deficits that determine that. And at least that was the way it was for me. So, um, even after we split up, there would be times where I would be upset about something or something went wrong. And my first instinct was, I can't do this. I got to go back to Donnie. I can't do this. I mean, and I would cry and just, I didn't know how to move forward through difficulty and without comfort of at least having something sure around me. And I'm so thankful for my family and friends at that time that would simply remind me of all the terrible things that had been going on, saying, you don't want to go back. Remember when he did this? Remember when this happened? And would paint that picture and it would be like, okay, you're right. And they would help me see clearly again when my emotions clouded my judgment. So I'm so grateful for the people that, that really helped me during that time. So there's no merit in getting out of a relationship if you do not do the work to completely clean it out of your life. Essentially, get out of a relationship, fine. Don't let it steal any more of your life. You you make it a line in the sand to say, this was not healthy, this wasn't serving me, this was bad, etc. Now, I'm taking my life back. And it was a process for me. It's still a process. I It gets easier the longer I work at it. It's been about 10 years since that divorce. It still requires work because if I think about it too much, I can get worked up all over again um, about it. And so there's definitely merit to putting the work in to making sure that a bad relationship doesn't steal any more of your future. And you know, I've done the whole online dating thing. And if there's one thing that you find, it's that there's tons of divorced people on dating sites and they're bitter and mad and they all they want to talk about is their ex and how terrible it was. And essentially it's like, I don't, I don't care. You know, I who are you? Why is this old relationship 
poisoning all the new connections that you're going to make and making you miserable for the rest of your life. It's like you take the hurt and you wear it like a badge. Like, look at me. I've been hurt. Well, what? why? What is the value in that? Um, heal and move on and, and live a life. And that is what I wanted. I got out of that relationship as difficult as it was because I wanted to live and I wanted to choose life. And so my takeaways, I'm just going to kind of run run through them. And I hope that you heard some of this coming through and me telling the story. There, there are keys to getting emotionally unstuck. You leave the relationship, you get divorced, it's on paper, you're legally not married to that person anymore, or you've just broken up, you're not boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Now you got to get emotionally unstuck. And the most important, you have to own your part. You have to look back at the Every single choice that you made that got you into that relationship, everything you chose to ignore, every moment you were not your best self without blaming. I had to look back and say, you know, yeah, my marriage was terrible, but I chose it. I manipulated my circumstances to marry him. I was not willing to sit with the discomfort of being alone. So I made a choice to get into that relationship and I knew who he was. He showed me who he was, and I chose to ignore it. And I have to say that because that is the truth, and I cannot blame him. Yes, he was a terrible person, but I knew that. I didn't know how bad, but I knew enough. And so you have to own your part without blaming, without turning it back on them. Acknowledge your own failings and and know that you cannot be 100% blameless. Even if the blame is only 1% on you, own it. Own it to your toes. It's the only way you're going to be able to correct and grow and not repeat those same mistakes. You have to own your part. You also have to recognize that the other players may not be total monsters. Like while their behaviors may be totally awful, there's often a reason for it. And it doesn't justify their actions. But if you can at least understand the reason, it helps you to be able to move on from it. Humanizing them, it helps ease the pain that you have. I know it probably came through most talking about my dad. My dad's role in my life, lack of role in my life, was a huge part of why I chose what I did. And I'm not blaming him. It's just the way it was. If my dad had been more involved in my life, if I had had that safety and connection of having a male role model and a male Um, source of love and affection and attention like you should have from your dad, I wouldn't have been so desperate to find it. And I was angry about that for so long until I really got a picture of my dad of like, he just didn't want to hurt me. And he, he didn't understand that staying far away was hurting me, but he knew that he didn't want to hurt me. And so understanding that you know, it, it it makes it so much easier to just forgive that and, and to say, okay, I, I get it. My dad was a hurt person trying not to perpetuate the same type of hurt. And so that helps me. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't justify. It doesn't make it okay. But explaining it and seeing him as a human being and understanding his role, it helps. And it makes that bitterness melt 
if I allow it to. It allowed me, it did allow me to forgive and love and move forward. And and now I, I love my dad and I understand and I don't hold any bitterness toward my dad at all. Um, and that took time and effort and work. And sometimes I do get mad all over again and I have to start this process over again. Um, also understand that if you were with a dysfunctional person, it allowed you a really great opportunity to blame everything on them. I did this. So there were a lot of things in my marriage that were my fault, but because my ex-husband was so terrible, I could easily blame everything on him and it was really believable like to other people. Like, why did this bad thing happen? Oh, I could find a way to blame it on him. And so when I left, all of a sudden I had to face the fact that I had dysfunctions and there was no one to blame but me. Like I I had to address my shortcomings and my irresponsibilities and own them and be responsible for my own choices. And that was a big shock to me. It was an eye-opener to realize how much of my mistakes I was blaming on him. And so all of a sudden, like if I overdrew the checking account or forgot to pay a bill or didn't get the oil changed, guess whose fault it was? It was mine. And that was a tough pill to swallow. And I actually see this in a lot of people around me that get out of relationships where they were blaming certain things on their ex, and then all of a sudden they're single, they have the same problems, and they don't understand, and they're still trying to find a way to blame it on that other relationship. And I just want to say, honey, this has been your issue all along. You just don't have a scapegoat anymore. And I can say that because that was me. I did that. And boy, was that a tough pill to swallow to understand that there were a lot of life skills I never learned because I didn't have to. I could just blame the deficit on him. And I did. And that wasn't fair. And that wasn't fair to him. And I'm sure when he's telling the story of our marriage and divorce, he can, with 100% accuracy, blame a lot of that stuff on me. And he's right. And that's hard. That's hard to say out loud. (laughs) But it's true. And the only way that I can be a good partner or mate in any relationship in the rest of my life is if I'm able to look in the mirror with honesty and see and accept and work on my crap. And there's so much of it. And there's no merit to hiding it. There's no merit to ignoring it. I want to be the best me that I can be. And I certainly was not the best me that I could have been in that relationship. And I didn't even realize it until I was out. So when you get out of a relationship, it's the perfect time to do some soul searching and fix you. I'm not saying that you accept all the blame for every relationship failure, but it does um, it does hold up a mirror and it's a perfect opportunity to do some self-work. And lastly, and most importantly, you got to choose life. You have to choose that your life post-relationship is going to be yours. Don't let the past experience steal one more minute from you. I was married for 12 years. I could choose to let that marriage be a 12-year experience or have it be a lifetime experience by bringing all that anger, disappointment, hurt with me for the rest of my life. I won't do it. I chose life. I chose freedom. I chose to get out. I will not give that period of time in my life one more negative moment I won't give it any more of my time. 
I'm 40. I got 40 years left if I live at average lifespan. I don't want those 12 years to take any more. And that's a choice. I don't talk about it much. I don't think about it much. I don't think about him. I don't Facebook stop him. I don't worry about it. I don't wish him ill will. I go and I do me. And those painful experiences can have as much power over the rest of your life as you decide that they do. And you can choose to say, nope, I made a choice to end this relationship or leave this relationship or this person left me. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to go live. I'm going to go slay. I'm going to go choose life every day. I choose life. I choose to live. Whatever that means for that day, life, live, go do. Living in the past sucks. Blaming other people sucks. It doesn't get you anywhere. So the key to getting unstuck from a relationship, I'm sorry to have to break it to you, but it's the key to getting unstuck from anything. It's called forgiveness. Every day, deciding to forgive the people that hurt you, forgive the players involved, forgive yourself for the role that you played in getting yourself into that situation. Forgiveness. It's not easy. There's no magic pill. It's not $39.95 and in 30 days you've forgiven. It's a process and it's intentional and you have to choose it. Thanks for joining me today. This very personal episode of the Destination Begin podcast. I really appreciate your feedback, your comments, your shares. So please reach out to me on Instagram, destination underscore begin, or you can email me directly, Kristen at destinationbegin.com. I really appreciate every kind word, every constructive criticism, all your feedback. And I would just love to hear specifically how this episode maybe spoke to you so that if you're stuck in a relationship or stuck in the mental and emotional anguish post-relationship that maybe you can start to get unstuck too. Talk to you soon. Have a great week.